Go to Romans chapter 12 this morning. First two verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformed is the title today. What would it really be like if I finally got tired of doing things my way, making the same bad choices over and over again, living mainly just for myself, and really just give myself to God and let Him run the whole thing? What would that be like? What will it cost me if I do that? I don't know if I can walk around acting all good all the time. I don't know if I can offer up that second cheek to slap or maybe always go that extra mile. You know about those things the Lord tells us to do. I want to ask you this. Since you have been the one in control and you've been running your life the way you've chosen to run it, how's that working out for you? That may take a longer answer than a, an amen or something. It's kind of what I thought. Much of the time, we're like that church in Revelation. You know, the one that put on a big front, like everything was great. But in reality, Jesus said they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Here in Romans chapter 12, where the apostle challenges us to literally present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. To give ourselves completely over to God. And then to the end of chapter 13, he tells us in those two chapters exactly how it's done. If you're going to do that, You're going to need to know how, because it's not as simple as you may think. Preachers are always saying, come on up here and give your life to Jesus. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Who could argue with that? I hope you realize that only saved people, nobody else, has the strength to give their life to Jesus. That strength comes only from Christ in you. It's just like it says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now before we get into how it's done, and that's really what the message is about today, I want to challenge you by pointing out that those who do not literally turn their lives over to the Lord, and that's most Christians, by the way, They're where they are because of fear. I I don't know if I can do all that. I'm afraid that I'll mess it up. Well, what are you afraid of? It's just backwards from what it appears. The truly brave ones are the meek and the humble and the faithful servants of the Lord. 
That's who the brave ones really are. The ones who by words or actions say, I'm running my own life. I make the decisions for me. Well, you're the ones who are the big fraidy cat chickens, not the ones who are humble and meek and serving. If you're saved, I know that in your spirit, you have a genuine heart's desire to do exactly what these scriptures are challenging us to do. Because the Lord put it in you when he saved you. He took your spirit which was dead in sins and made you alive on the inside. Not only just alive, but he created you in righteousness and true holiness, just like the Bible says. So here's the how to do it to go along with the desire that the Lord already put in your heart. So if you think that you might be up to this, here's step one. And that is you're going to need to see yourself as you really are. That's not as easy as it may sound. Seeing yourself as you really are is going to require some balance. Romans 12.3 says this. This is the very next verse that we hadn't read yet. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. This scripture does not say, do not think highly of yourself. That's not what it says. It says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You see, there are two sides to a proper view of ourselves. On one side, we have our value in ourselves. In and of ourselves, well, let me go to chapter 3 and read to you God's description of the value that we have in and of ourselves. Starts in verse number 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. That's like a grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. They've lied. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In and of ourselves. This is not the feel-good part, by the way. We'll get to that later. But in and of ourselves, we are unrighteous, we are unworthy, we are corrupted, we are vile sinners who are fit for nothing but to be cast into hell and forgotten about forever. That's our value in and of ourselves. Not a pretty picture. However, this picture changes drastically when we now add what Jesus did when we trusted him to save us from our sins. We didn't just go through a kind of a formality when we put our trust in Jesus. You did do that, right? You remember it? 
when you put your trust in Jesus to save you after you learned what he did for you on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us about the new picture. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God himself, in the form of a man, has by the cross taken on my unrighteousness. He paid for it in full, and he has given me his own perfect righteousness in its place. My description has now gone from complete unrighteousness to perfect righteousness because of Jesus. We now have immeasurable value in Christ. The whole picture has completely turned around. We now are redeemed. I'm born again. I'm justified. I've been declared righteous. I have been saved to the uttermost. I I like that term. I'm sure the new translations have messed it up, but uh, saved to the uttermost. Do you know what uttermost means? It means it's the most you can utter. That's what it means. You can't say anything higher or better or more wonderful about my salvation than what is there. That's what I have in Christ. We are heirs to the kingdom that fades not away. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are the elect. We are chosen. We are blessed forever. Amen. And considering what we were compared to now what we are in Christ and to whom I owe all of this, who then should we be living for? Who is worthy that we live for? Who is qualified to make the decisions? You know those sad, poor decisions that we've been making our whole life. What then is the measure by which men should be highly thought of? You know, the scripture said that we should not be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. So what's the measure by which men should be highly thought of? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul said this. He said, I beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their works' sake. Every Christian should desire to be highly thought of. It doesn't say not to think highly of yourself. It doesn't say you shouldn't be highly thought of. It says you shouldn't be more highly thought of than you ought to be. You know, there's something about bringing glory to the Lord. You know, I got it on the wall up there. I hope you read that every Sunday when you come in here. In order to give glory to the Lord, you're going to have to have some to give. Think about it. You don't have to be a pastor or a preacher to achieve this. What's the measure by which men ought to be highly thought of? We read it in verse number 3. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Those who step out in faith, those who do the things God calls them to do, those who put Jesus and the work of the Lord first above all else, they are those 
who will have crowns to lay at Jesus' feet someday. They are those who cause other people to consider him now because of what they see in them. We need a proper view of ourselves if we're going to accomplish this transformation we're talking about. Step number two. You're going to need to place yourself where you belong. Every believer is designed by the Lord to be an integral part of a real church, which is the body of Christ. Now, I'll say this in an echo to what one of our men spoke up at camp this last week. Every church building doesn't mean there's a real church inside. It needs to be a real church. I'm going to get into that another day. Here in chapter 12, as we keep reading down to verse number 4 now, here's what I'm talking about. It says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Furthermore, it goes on to tell us in chapter 12, verse 18, that God hath set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. You're going to have to put yourself where you belong, and you belong in a real church, serving as a part of the body. Being a committed, faithful member of your church is your first actual, tangible step in presenting yourself to Christ as a believer. God tells us we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Living means you got to be alive. You can't still be lost, dead in sins. And sacrifice means it's going to cost you something. One of the highest priorities of a real real church is that we teach sinners how to be saved. We don't get to to do the little pray this prayer thing and then go to lunch early and beat the Methodists to the cafeteria. Okay, That's not what we do. Our job is to teach sinners how to be saved. And then when they trust Jesus and become saved, we are commanded, commanded, not suggested, commanded to baptize them. You know, in the water, back behind the curtains. Matthew 28, here's what Jesus told that church. There was only one at the time, and every real church that exists today descended from that one. He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach them what? What he told us over and over and over and over again. Teach them how to be saved. Teach them to believe. And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Lord's first command to every new believer is really simple. Be baptized. There's three things that have to be present for a real baptism. One It has to be a proper candidate, someone who is already born again because the water is not going to help you get there. And number two, 
It has to be immersion in water. And the third requirement, and maybe the second most important, is that it needs to be done by a proper authority, and that authority is a real church. The Lord's first command, Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Chapter 10, verse 48 of Acts says, He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Your baptism adds you as a member to your church. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That may happen here today. This describes the primary means by which the Lord adds members to the body of Christ. There are other means by which members are added to a church, and those may or may not be the work of the Lord. Sometimes we don't always know when people come and say, I want to join the church. Well, we ask them, do you have a real baptism? And was it by a church that really preached the gospel that you're confident was a real church? We want to know if it's a real deal or not. And people come that way. The Bible tells us that it works like that. But we don't know the heart. We can't tell for sure. But there is, however, one method that is sure. If you were saved and baptized here, then this is exactly where you belong. There's no question about it when that applies. And we're not questioning you otherwise. We believe your word, and we're glad you're here. But if you got saved here and baptized here, you don't have to wonder about where you belong. This is it. You have found your place. Step number three, once you are where you belong... Once you're there, you need to apply your abilities where they count. You all have abilities. You need to apply them where they matter, where it can make a difference. Verse number 6 of Romans chapter 12. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. That's talking about what I'm doing right now. I'm not prophesying, I'm preaching, but the terms are similar. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, that he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I'm supposed to be happy. Sometimes it's hard to be happy. It seems that every Christian wants to know about spiritual gifts. Am I right about that? Y'all don't look as happy as I'm supposed to be. Now that's a little better. Okay. Let me teach you some little known facts about biblical spiritual gifts. About two years before this letter to the Romans was written, the Apostle Paul wrote a similar letter to the church at Corinth. Both letters addressed major problems that were occurring in the churches. Romans, it was primarily the issues of bigotry. In 1 Corinthians, it was primarily the misuse of spiritual gifts. Paul told the Corinthians who were using their spiritual gifts 
to make themselves look more important, that spiritual gifts were for the express purpose of building up the church, not building up the individual. You imagine, you imagine if we had someone here with the genuine gift of healing, we'd have sent him over to the hospital the minute uh, Glenda got admitted after her car wreck. And she'd be here today fully healed and ready to go. That guy might get pretty popular. You might even have a special title for him. Who knows? Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 14 says, Even so ye, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying or to the building up of the church. Spiritual gifts are not for individual Christians. Spiritual gifts are for the body, for the church. Furthermore, the apostle stated that the miraculous gifts that made the individual look big and more important, like the gift to heal, the gift of knowledge, or the ability to perform miracles, the ability to speak in other languages that they had not learned and the like, he said those gifts are going to cease. Do you know why? There are a lot of reasons, but they had served their purpose. And there were other and better means, love being the biggest one, to build up the body than speaking in tongues or healing illnesses. 1 Corinthians 13.8 Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Chapter 12 of both books, both Romans and 1 Corinthians, are the chapters that list the gifts, the spiritual gifts of each church. Two years after the Apostle Paul declared that tongues would cease, here in Rome, now that he's written this letter, all those spiritual gifts, all those miraculous spiritual gifts that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are now missing. They don't exist in the church at Rome. Check it out. Read them both. See what I'm talking about. Instead, those miraculous gifts, now that they're missing, they've been replaced with other new gifts that do edify the body of Christ. Like the gift of giving. The gift of hospitality. What would, the, what would our church be like if nobody in our church had the gift of hospitality? Where would we ever get to have a home team? Well, I won't get into all that. But it brings up an important question. Why would God give or even reveal to you a spiritual gift if you're not a member of the body, which is where those gifts are designed and commanded to be used? Every New Testament letter to every church lays out our purpose and our priorities the same way. Let me read it from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we just we sang about that a few minutes ago. What's the Christ the cornerstone of? 
He's the cornerstone of the church. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God sets the members in the body as it pleases Him, and He builds us together to form a habitation. What's that? It's a dwelling place. For whom? For God, through the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the building up of the church. That's what those gifts are for. Ephesians 3.21, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen, He said. And now step four. Once you see yourself clearly, you get yourself in church where you belong, and you start using your abilities, your gifts, where they count, then you can begin to replace the garbage with godliness. In and of ourselves, that is in our flesh, we are still indeed evil. Did I say I was going to get to a feel-good part? Well, this isn't it. Even the great Apostle Paul, and by the way, you talk about somebody that deserves to be highly thought of. That man was something else. He was a servant like few ever, ever heard of in this world. Even the great Apostle Paul knew and understood that except for his born-again spirit, he, like every sinner, like you and me, was evil through and through. Look what he said in chapter 7, verse 18 of Romans. He said, for I know that in me, and in the parentheses he says, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. And don't tell me that's not like you, because it is. And it's like me. I'm not proud of it, but it's the truth. It's part of seeing ourselves who we really are. It was he who taught us to follow the desires of our spirit, which is alive from the dead. And thus we will not fulfill, if we do that, we will not fulfill the desires of our evil flesh. That's what he told the churches of Galatia, chapter 5, verse 16. He said, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. There's only one way to defeat the evil that is within us, and that is to replace it with righteous activity. It doesn't work any other way. The Bible tells us this over and over and over again. Romans 12, 21, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 9, Let love be without dissimulation. Let it be real. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Proverbs 16, 3, commit thy works unto the Lord, 
and thy thoughts will be established. The only way to do this is to place ourselves in an environment of continual righteous activity. And you're not going to find one out there in the world. And you're not going to find one in a fake church that teaches you to work your way to heaven. You're going to find one in a genuine church, which is the body of Christ. We get started in church. That's where we get encouraged and we get cheered on for righteous activity instead of being slammed and ridiculed like we're going to be out there in the world. Here in chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. When you get a text message with prayer request, how long does it take you to pray? See what I mean? Distributing to the necessity of the saints. Given to hospitality. There's that new gift that Paul was talking about in Romans 12. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. You get started right here in God's house, replacing the garbage with godliness, and then from here you take it on out into the world. That's what it continues on in verse number 17. He says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. One way that we demonstrate the perfect will of God is by being subject to human authority. It goes on to tell us in chapter 13, verse 3, For rulers... Oh, I know, we've got an election coming up, and it's going to get painful for all of us. How long do we have to listen to it? Can't you just get it over with? Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. I know we've got elected officials that are trying to prove that wrong. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. For he is a minister to God, of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For, th- for, for this cause pay ye tribute, for they are God's ministers attending attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, you may not like hearing this, but verse 7 means that Christians are to pay their taxes. Christians are to respect God-ordained authority. They're to tithe, and not necessarily in that order. 
In conclusion, now this is the part that you're looking for, the end of this today. Conclusion. Verse 8, No man owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. By the way, being a good neighbor, Josh is back there teaching the kids But uh, he has really set an example in this church lately as to how to be a good neighbor. Isn't he, Megan? Yeah, they are amazing. Megan and her family is in church today, born again, headed to heaven because Josh loved his neighbor. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. That's talking about the fulfillment of it. Night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. That's how you succeed in Christian life. You cast off the evil and you put on the good. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Most of you that truly know Jesus, even though you know that you're saved, you're still trying to hold on to at least pieces of your old life and of your old ways. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. All of us, all of us have pieces of our old life, our old ways that are embedded into our daily living. Let me ask you this. Aren't you glad that you trusted Jesus to save you? How glad are you about that? Scale of one to ten. I'm a ten. I am absolutely so glad. Aren't you glad that you have a great new life in Christ? Aren't you glad you have a, a great church home to encourage you and pray for you and love you? Well, doesn't it stand to reason that you'll be just as glad if you let go and let Jesus have it all? Doesn't it make sense? You know what it is that you're holding on to. You do. Nobody knows it better than you, except maybe the Lord. It's the thing that the Lord's always speaking to you about. You know, that thing. You know what I'm talking about. Why not today just let Jesus have it all? Just let him have that too. You know what Jesus said it was, if you would do that? What did he call it? He called it reasonable, which is your reasonable service. When there's solid reasoning behind something, it it means that it makes sense. It makes sense that you and I should present ourselves, our bodies, everything we have, everything we are, who we are, what we are, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. I heard an old story one time about a kid that was in church and 
he walked to the front of the church and he laid the offering plate on the floor and he stood in it. He didn't have any money to put in. And they asked him, he said, what are you doing? He says, I'm offering myself to Jesus. Now, I think there's probably better ways to do it than that. But I think you get the point. 